And folks, if you keep that passage open, we're just going to keep an eye on that um, this morning. Um, let me pray before we uh, come to, to dwell on that. Father God, we, we know that your word's powerful, that when you speak to us, it, it changes the world. Lord, one of the images you give us in your word, of your word, is as a, a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Uh, Lord, help us to be courageous enough today to hear you and to allow your word to do its work in our lives. Amen. Um, folks, we've been uh, studying in Luke's gospel. We're, we're back into this series, very much up and running. We've had a couple of um, quite familiar passages, but I think um, some quite, um, just a powerful sense of God speaking through them. And um, the thing that that I wanted to point out right at the outset with this, this um, story that Jesus tells, which makes up the most of our passages, its context, and I'd never really noticed this before. Uh, the way Luke tells the story, this conversation, this story that Jesus tells must have happened around the dinner table in Zacchaeus's house. So it's still the same day. It's all the stuff that we have thought about these last three weeks has happened on the same day. Um, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is on his way through Jericho to Jerusalem. So he meets on his way into the city, uh, Bartimaeus. And, and you maybe remember uh, what we thought about there. Then he's continued through Jericho and, and out the other side of the city. And that's where he, he met uh, Zacchaeus. That's what we were thinking about last week. And this day is ending up around the dinner table there in Zacchaeus's house. The, the guests that evening, uh, they were euphoric. Uh, they were getting, getting a bit carried away, I suppose we might say, uh, good Ulster folk who don't like to get carried away about anything. These guys were getting a bit carried away. Uh, and, you know, you could hardly blame them. They'd seen Jesus um, raise up uh, an oppressed blind man and heal him. They'd seen, you know, by the way, Bartimaeus might have been at this dinner table. I don't know. But it says at the end of chapter 18 that when Jesus healed him, he started following Jesus. So if that was literally the case, if he joined the crowd, maybe he's ended up at this dinner table. So Bartimaeus has been healed, raised up and healed. Zacchaeus, the, the guy everybody hates in Jericho, has been transformed to the extent that instead of ripping people off and stealing their money, he wants to, to give to the poor. So when you've seen that kind of stuff happen, the crowd around that table, the guys who are in that room, they're probably thinking, goodness, this guy's unstoppable. His, nobody's safe from his grace. I mean, he can get anybody. And so uh, Luke tells us, verse 11, this, the, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Sure, he's unstoppable. The king's arrived. Let's, let's join in with him. Let's go with him to, to Jerusalem, to our capital city, and let's see this kingdom of God established with Jesus right at the center. So that's the kind of thing that's being said around the table and that's what prompts Jesus' story. 
That's why he tells it. And he tells one of these stories, if, if you're familiar with uh, the Gospels and, and with Jesus, he, he, he tells stories a lot. Uh, some of them we call parables. Um, they're, they're usually deceptive. They usually look like quite a simple wee story, but what we find is if, if we enter into them, if we go along with what he's saying, there's usually a, a pretty big sting in the tail. Uh, and this parable has uh, a little bit of that to it today. We've read the story. I think Jesus uses it to make three related points. We're going to deal very quickly with the first two and focus mostly on the third one. The three points that he's making... The kingdom's not coming just yet. Not everyone's going to love it when the kingdom does come. And then the third point, we need to think about how we're going to live between now and the king's return. So the kingdom's not coming just yet. That first point very quickly. Notice, we're just going to notice what Jesus says himself in the story. If you look at verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Jesus is telling this story about himself. And he's telling his audience, if the veers to hear it, that he is not yet ready to become king, that he's going somewhere else, that he'll be gone for a while, and then he'll come back when it's the right time. That's it. The second thing that Jesus has to say about this, this kingship that he's going to take on sometime in the future, he, he says, don't assume that everybody's going to welcome this. Verse 14. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Folks, I think it's important that we see this and that we understand it. Jesus didn't expect people all to, to receive him, to, to be glad that he was coming as king. He isn't surprised that people don't want him to be their king. He, he wasn't surprised about that during his time on earth, but this story of his has, has a bit of a reach right through human history. And my sense is that the all-seeing Jesus can, can look through human history and he's not surprised that people at any point along the way are refusing him and his kingship. It's about 135 years since Nietzsche declared, God is taught. God is dead. Now Nietzsche didn't think that God had died. He's an atheist. He didn't believe in God. But Nietzsche was talking about how Europe had realized that it no longer needed God. That modern Western cultures had put God to death. As I read this parable, I can't help but think, yeah, sure Jesus knows about that. He says that people don't want them to be king. Jesus Christ knew about Nietzsche and isn't surprised by him. In our times, Richard Dawkins and the new atheism, the, the secularization of British culture, the, the rejection in Ireland of our Christian heritage, this doesn't surprise Jesus. He told us 
that not everyone would want him as king. He warns the guys that evening around the case table, guys, you might be getting excited about me, about the idea of my kingship, but, but that's not going to be everybody's response. People might not want Jesus as king, but, but king he will be. Verse 15 tells us that. And the rest of Jesus' story has to do with this reality. If Jesus is king, he's going to come and it's going to have implications for every last one of us. He's going to judge every person. Let me deal very quickly with those who didn't want Jesus as their king. We don't really see what happens to them until the very end of the story. Verse 27. King passes, once he's returned, he passes his verdict on them. He says, those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's hard to imagine a more decisive verdict or a harsher penalty. We're not going to dwell on this today. It's, It's actually not the main focal point of this story. But I need to say this in case anyone is in any doubt. There will be a judgment. And those who haven't accepted the rule of Jesus Christ will pay the penalty for their their rebellion and their insubordination. We thought about this in different terms in our last series in Deuteronomy, but you might remember at the very end of that series, um, uh, a part where Moses was talking to the people of Israel and he t- put it in very stark terms. He said, choose life. To, he, was, he was asking them not, not to choose death, but to choose life. Not to choose life, you see, not to choose life in Jesus Christ is to choose death. Folks, the remainder of Jesus' story, we learn about how another group of people are to live. And I hope, I hope you can see this, at least now that I pointed out. There are a group of people in this story who, who are living for the king. They're, they're, cho- they're his servants, they're called, in this story. And if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, living between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, awaiting his return, I think we, we should see that this is our part in this story. We're the servants who are living, waiting for the king's return. So this story, uh, and the bulk of it, is about us. It's a pretty simple story, uh, albeit very, very challenging. So before he goes off on the, the journey, this, uh, this nobleman, who isn't yet a king, but he's going to be, he gives each of his servants ten minas. Now, People might have heard growing up about the parable of the talents. This parable needs a new name. Somebody needs to give this a name. The talents was a bad name because it confused us in all sorts of ways. The mina is like, who knows what a mina is? Except that the, the footnote, the NIV, help us a wee bit. Three months' salary a mina is. So if you get 10 minas, you've got 30 months' salary. So depending on what salary Jesus is talking about in today's money, it's 40 grand if it's a, a quite a meager salary, 70 grand, 100 grand, somewhere in that ballpark. Big chunk of money. 
not nothing. So Jesus wants us to know that whatever is going on in this story, people have been giving, given significant resources. Here you go. Here's something really significant, a really big opportunity. It's yours. And he wants them to put this money to work. Verse 14, put this money to work. There's nothing ambiguous about it. Make the money work. Make this stuff fly. So the story is pretty simple. Um, the master does return now as king and he asks these servants that he's given this money to to appear before him to give an account of what they've done with the money. If you keep an eye on the story there, some of them have done really well. One of them gets a 100% return, 10 minus, 10 more, and the master says, well done. Uh, another one manages to get a 50% return. He got 10 minus and he, he's got five, five more. So uh, again, well done. And they're rewarded. They're commended and they're rewarded. And if you just pause there for a second before you go any further in the story, I just think that's brilliant. Every time now that I read a passage in the Bible which talks about God's favor, I'm relieved. We live in a world where people can be so critical and judgmental. For me to know that the living God might look on me and say, well done. That puts everything into perspective. What a lovely possibility. Well done. Here's your reward. That's what I want. That's how I want to live. Two of the investors, Jesus chooses just to focus on three of them. Two of them did well. One of them not so well. Verse 20. Another servant came and he said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. He's played it safe. He's refused the risk that inevitably comes. Anytime you make an investment, take a step, you, you take a risk. He goes on to explain why he, he did that. It's quite interesting to get the insight. What, what's he thinking? I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you didn't put in and you reap what you didn't sow. So remember, Jesus is telling this story to his disciples, his followers, to show them how to live in light of his coming return. And he holds up a mirror and he shows us, I think, particularly in this character, how we might be inclined to think about God. When we're unwilling to take risks for God's kingdom and for his glory, it shows a serious misunderstanding of who God is. I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. Those are the kinds of things that we must be saying to ourselves. That's how we view God if we're not willing to take risks for his glory. And Jesus shows us in no uncertain terms, what, what does he show us? The king is angry. This doesn't please the king. The king does not say, well done, I love your careful risk-averse lifestyle. Let me commend you for that. He doesn't say that. 
You see, Jesus shows us in this parable that fear is failure and that risk is right. Very quickly, a definition of risk that I came across this week, in case we're not sure what, what I'm talking about when I, when I use that word. Risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. Sounds like a kind of thing that would be in the small print at the bottom of an insurance document. Loss or injury. That's, that's what risk is. There's a possibility when we take a step that something bad might happen. Now, I'm going to guess that most of us haven't thought an awful lot about the place of risk in Christian discipleship. And, and we might not have considered that this is a big part of our calling, to be people who take a risk for God's glory. Let's reflect for a moment on another Bible passage, uh, one that we had paused to to look at not so long ago, where the issue of risk is right at the heart of it. There was a generation of God's people who are famous now for being the people who said no to the opportunity to take a risk. And we thought about them at the start of our Deuteronomy series. If, if you want to, to flick, just to remind yourself, it's Numbers 13. We see the story. It's page 149. I'm going to tell the story quite quickly. This is less than three years after Israel has been brought out of uh, Egypt, captivity in Egypt, and they're on the border of the promised land. Numbers 13, verse 2, God tells Moses, here's the next step that we need to take. Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. So Moses sent Caleb, Joshua, and ten other men. And then for 40 days, they had a look around the land. They came back. I always remember this from my children's Bible. There was a page where they the showed the, the guys carrying the huge bunch of grapes. Does anybody remember that? Yeah, on a like bamboo stick. Um, so th this is what happened. They went to the land. It was so fertile and fruitful. Um, just a brilliant place. And verse 30 of Numbers 13, Caleb gives his assessment. He says, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. God said, do it. We've had a look. We think we can do it. Let's do it. But the other men who were with him took a different view. We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And their view, the view of these other men, carried on that particular day at held sway. So the people of Israel, faced with a choice, will we take the risk God's calling us to, or won't we? They say, we won't. And throughout the rest of the history of God's people, we have always understood that to be the wrong thing to do. That fear is failure. And that risk is right. Those folks standing on the border of, of Canaan believed the same sort of crazy nonsense that we sometimes believe. Here's what we sometimes believe. We believe that there's a good, safe, and secure life outside of what God calls us to. 
crazy. I know that God's calling me to do this, but safety and security is this. How could it be? (laughs) God's calling us. This is the only way to go. The result on that occasion was tragic, and actually it's probably some sort of a paradigm, I think. A wasted generation and the guts of 40 years. A wasted generation of people and a long time. uh, The purposes of God must be paused, at least in Israel's life. Folks, if we want to waste our own lives, if that's what we're keen to do, then here's what we must do. Avoid taking the risks that God's calling us to. If we want to be sure of wasting our lives, let's, let's avoid them. And we'll be grand. Talking on this theme of taking risks for God and his foreword to John Piper's uh, book, Risk is Right, David Platt says this. As we stand at our Kaddish Barnea, uh, that's where Israel was standing in this moment we've just talked about. We have a choice. We too can retreat into the wilderness of wasted opportunity. We can rest content in the casual, convenient, cozy, comfortable Christian lives as we cling on to safety and security that this world offers. We can coast through a cultural landscape marked by materialism, characterized by consumerism and engulfed in individualism. We can assent to the spirit of this age and choose to spend our lives seeking worldly pleasure, aspiring worldly possessions, acquiring and pursuing worldly ambitions. And then we can try to pass that off as some acceptable version of Christianity. Or we can accept that Jesus Christ is worth far more than this. We can recognize that he created us and that he saved us and that he's called us to a so much greater purpose than anything that this world can ever offer us. We can die to ourselves, to our hopes, our ambitions and our dreams, our priorities and our plans. We can do all of this because we believe that the reward of getting Jesus makes any risk more than worth it. According to Piper and Platt, Jesus says that risk is right. And it just strikes me, it might take some time for that idea to even sink in with us. Is that true? Is risk right? Is the failure to take risks for Jesus wrong? I mentioned to somebody this week that I was preaching this parable and he told me of an experience he had had um, talking to a youth group about the parable. Uh, And he told me they thought it was unfair. They thought the master was very hard on the guy who hid the money under his floorboards. You know, he didn't use it to buy drugs. He didn't go to the bookies. All he did was say, there's your money back. I kept it safe for you. 
sometimes the decision not to do anything and the failure to take necessary steps to offer the necessary leadership to take the risk is wrong. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German, uh, the young pastor theologian in Hitler's Germany, he had the opportunity uh, in those years to think long and hard about the place of risk in Christian discipleship. Everywhere he looked in the early 1930s, um, he saw Christian indecisiveness. The, the Deutsche Christen, as they were called, the German Christians in his own country, indecisive in the face of Hitler. The, the world church uh, becoming aware of this situation, indecisive in the face of Hitler. The only person acting with any decisiveness was Hitler in this uh, mix. In the end, Bonhoeffer and his friends decided that they would act. They established a, a new confessing church where they at least tried to live from under the, the, the stranglehold of the Third Reich. In April 1934, Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to Henri-Louis Henriot, a Swiss theologian. And he was heading the, the World Alliance, uh, an alliance of world churches at that time. Bonhoeffer was pleading for support for the German Christians, the, the pastors and, the Germ and Christians in Germany. And it's in this letter that he spells out the dangers of indecision, of doing nothing. And he writes this. A decision must be made at some point. It's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. Even the ecumenical movement has to make up its mind and is therefore subject to error. But to procrastinate and prevaricate simply because you're afraid of erring when others, and I mean our brothers and sisters in Germany, must make infinitely more dis difficult decisions every day, seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. We don't know if our risks will be right, but that doesn't make it right to sit and do nothing. That last sentence is worth reflecting on. Avoiding risks can be more sinful, more unloving than taking the risk in faith and love. Folks, I, I know this temptation in my own leadership. So long as I don't take a decisive step in one direction or the other, I'm safe. You can't accuse me of getting it wrong. I can remain comfortable. I can avoid the embarrassment of making a mistake and having egg in my face. I can live that kind of a life. The problem is, with this approach, it will never lead us into life. And that's where I want to go. I want to live the life that God's calling me to. I want to go into the promised land. 
in Jesus' story, it's not the guys who take the steps and who take the risks who lose out. Who is it who loses out? It's the guy who does nothing, thinking I'm afraid of losing what I have, who loses it all. It's taken away from him. Verse 24, the king says, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Minus, sir, but they've already got ten. You can, you can see where this is coming from, can't you? I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but the one who has nothing, even what he has, will be taken away. It's shocking stuff. We've got to get over our sentimental view of Jesus Christ and the workings of his kingdom. Jesus doesn't feel sorry for timid Christians and introverted churches who are sitting looking in on themselves and letting the world outside go. When we give up obeying his call, when we fail to obey him, to take the risks that he's calling us to, he doesn't look on that and feel sorry for us and think, what can I do for those poor souls? It makes him angry. And he says, what little you have, I'll take away from you. And folks, I have no hesitation in interpreting it that way because I see it happening around me in countless churches all around Belfast. What little you have, I will take from you. Folks, I don't want to be one of those old guys who talks about the good old days. Oh, that youth group I was part of. Or that church. Kirkpatrick Memorial in the early years of the 2000s. What a great time it was. If you catch me talking like that, talking about the good old days, take me, shake me, and ask me, what are you doing today? What risk are you taking today for tomorrow for the glory of Jesus and his kingdom? That's what I want you to ask me. Don't ask me about the early years. I don't want to spend the second half of my life living off of something that happened in the past. My best years are still to come. And I want to say that until I go. Just before I close, I want to pay tribute to some people. You've heard me talk about risk and you maybe don't know what I'm talking about. What do you mean? What are you talking about? I want to pay tribute to some people who have taken some risks along the way. People who have done it with me. Um, Claire, you said yes to me a matter of weeks after I walked out of the only proper job I ever had. Could have made a bit of money. You married me while I was a theological student with no real idea of our future. You came with me to a dying church on a ministerial minimum wage with a six-week-old baby wondering if he'd ever have a friend in his own church. There were no children here. I salute you. 
to the elders emeritus of this church. I'm talking about the guys who were here when I first came. Stanley, Morris, Desmond, Dorothy, Lavinia, Jennifer. Thank you for taking me on. 31-year-old. No track record. Didn't know what I was doing. Well, I don't know what I'm doing now, so how could I have known back then? Must be. Thanks for taking the risk on me, but, but also with me. Um, I remember the conversation when you interviewed me that night up in the Skelly Hall. It was, um, I don't know, felt like the whole Kirk session there. About 10 people, almost everybody already a pensioner at that stage. And one of the elders said this. Looked along the row of, of the elders. I was down there being interviewed. Looked along the row and said, look at us. We don't have long left. But we want one last chance to see if God would do something in our church. And as soon as I came to join with you, I, I saw that you meant it. Thank you for that. Those who joined in the early days, I'm sorry, those of you who have joined us recently, it's not a risk joining Kirkpatrick anymore. It's, it's a halfway decent church. Back then it was rubbish. I remember, I remember preaching in the early days, and it only happened to me once, but this thought flashed across my mind. If I keep preaching, if I keep speaking, we won't have to sing the next song. That's how bad it was. If I, if I just keep talking, we'll not have to sing again. Some of you joined us at a time when there were a hundred more attractive church communities to join. But you wanted to be part of something that you sensed that God was doing in this place. And I salute you for that. Eighteen months ago, Dan Hay stood at the frontier, told us about a vision God had given him to go and see if something could be done, if a church, a small church, could flourish in Clarawood, the housing estate in our parish. Big risk for him to stick his neck out like that, him and Jude and the family. Big risk for the other guys who got involved, who are out there week by week now, slogging away. I salute them. I think it's brilliant. Folks, taking risks for God, this, these ones I've described, lots of others I don't have time to mention, taking risks for God, this is our history, this is our story, and I'm asking you today, what are you going to do with that going into the future? Are we going to become the people who once did things for God and then once he blessed us, once he gave us the good stuff, we stopped. What a tragic response to the grace of God among us. We've been blessed in a way that only a tiny handful of churches in our whole country can talk of being blessed today. What are we going to do with that? Here's my suggestion. Let's not stop taking risks. Let's learn to take more, bigger ones, for his glory.
this is the kind of conversation that's going on around the dinner table at Zacchaeus' house that evening in Jericho. Jesus tells his friends this story to show them that in his kingdom, risk is right. There's simply no other way. And here's what I love about Jesus. He tells them that risk is right, and then he puts his money where his mouth is. After the meal that evening, I'm going to guess that Jesus goes to bed. And then he gets up the next morning and he sets his face for Jerusalem. And he does it knowing that he's stepping into the eye of the storm. The people, he's talked in his own story here about people who don't want them to be king. Well, they're going to kill him. And he knows it. Talk about taking a risk. Jesus isn't taking a risk. It's a step beyond that. It's certain failure and death. Jesus leaves Jericho certain of the price that he's going to pay, but he does it because he knows that you and I need it. And he takes that step for us. Maybe you're a risk-averse kind of person. We know that language in our culture these days. I think we all are. We've been trained that way. How are we going to find the courage to take the risks that God is calling us to? Well, only by looking to Jesus Christ. You see, we find the strength to risk losing face. Because a lot of risk is about losing face, especially for people who, who somehow have made it in the world. You don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to lose credibility. Well, let's look to the one who gave it all, who lost all credibility, and the one who only, the only person who can raise our face back up, the only one who can vindicate us finally in ways that matter. How do I find the strength to risk losing money for the cause of the gospel? Well, it's when we come to believe Jesus that he has a treasure for us that, that can't fail, that doesn't rust, thieves can't destroy. And how do we find the strength to risk losing our, our life, our very life? Well, it's when we trust the promise of Jesus Christ that it's the one who loses his life who finds it. Folks, Jesus says that risk is right. I suppose that leaves us all with a question. And that's whether we believe him or not. Let's pray. Jesus, we always imagined that you were a white, middle class, respectable type a bit like a lot of ourselves here. And then we take a few moments just to read your word, to read 
the account that your spirit has left us of your life on this earth. And almost without fail, we're astounded by who you really were. The things that you did and the things that you said. Lord, we thought it was good to be safe. Pairs of hands. We thought that that's the kind of thing that you like. Lord, while you do give wisdom, help people to make good decisions. And we thank you for that. You've shown us today that you want us to be courageous and to make big investments. Take big steps forward for your glory in your kingdom. Show us where you want us to do that and then help us to do it. Because we want to show up before you with 10 minus or 20 or 100. And we want to hear you say, well done. Here's your reward. Amen.